From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and your host for today's show on the Feminist Fight Club, a fiercely funny and empowering book by Jessica Bennett that both defines the persistent, pernicious sexism that exists in the workplace and lays out a battle plan to conquer it. In 2011, when I started to interview successful businesswomen, I was shocked to discover two things. One, how very real sexism still was at work, even for the most well-trained and accomplished women in the highest echelons of business. And two, how uncomfortable people were, especially those women, with the word feminism and the open discussion of the sexism that we've all experienced. Fortunately, between the push for diversity and inclusion as an economic imperative to drive growth and innovation, um, the fact that that emerged alongside the publication of Lean In, um, this third wave of feminism has gotten real traction. As a result, we're seeing the emergence of a powerful and dynamic discourse that includes men, thank goodness, we're so glad you're part of this, um, and a new generation of really important voices, chief of which in my book is today's guest, Jessica Bennett. She has written a powerful and hilarious manifesto um, and survival manual that's fueled by rigorous research, a sophisticated understanding of complex social issues and real humanity. This also happens to be a hallmark of her outstanding journalism and editorial work, which can be found in the New York Times and leaned in, to name a few places. If you'd like to join in the conversation today, um, give us a call. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So whether you'd like to ask Jessica for tips and hacks for dealing with sexism at work or share your story of how you embrace the F word, give us a call. Once again, that's 1-844-WHARTON. 844-942-7866. So Jessica Bennett is an award-winning journalist, author of The Feminist Fight Club, an office survival manual for a sexist workplace. And she is quite, del- I am delighted to say, our guest for today's show. So Jessica, welcome to Women at Work. We're so glad to have you here. Hey, I'm happy to be here. So Jessica, as a reader of The New York Times, I told you I really loved your article on why feminists join sororities. You took a topic that I had a lot of preconceived notions about, and you made me consider it anew, um, largely to a, thanks to a kind of discipline open-mindedness that you brought to your journalism. The Feminist Fight Club, though, has this really clear perspective. It's full of, and it's part of what makes it so awesome, opinion. Practical, delightfully snarkly, and unapologetically militant. How did you get there? (laughs) Well, I think that I sort of have my columnist voice and I have my journalistic voice. And I've been covering these, these issues from an objective journalistic standpoint for many years now. And I've been able to learn a lot of the data and I know a lot of the background about what's going on. But what I kept noticing was that there was a lot of talk about the problems and not a lot of talk about solutions. And it made me frustrated. And if I was frustrated, I'm sure that many other women in the working world were frustrated. So I think I fueled that frustration into solutions that I tried to provide in the book and, like you said, try to be unapologetic about. In particular, um, it, you, you embrace the concept of militant feminism. Um, how did you get there, particularly as somebody who grew up in a world where all this was supposed to be fixed? Right. You know, my upbringing was so progressive in, in many ways that I didn't even really learn the meaning of the word feminism until I entered the workforce. You know, I, I grew up in Seattle, feminist parents always told I could accomplish whatever I set my mind to and truly believed that much along the lines of the statistics that we see, you know, women graduating from college in higher numbers, going on to receive more PhDs and master's degrees. And then they hit the workforce and they realized that something is amiss. And for me, you know, over the course of the last few years, we hear so much talk about empowerment and inspiring women to do better. And, you know, this is a hot topic of conversation, but a lot of the time I feel like it doesn't necessarily speak to me. It's almost like a watered-down form of talking about feminism. And I felt like I wanted to cut the shit. (laughs) I wanted to get to the point. I wanted to get back to that sense 
that I think my mother's generation had in, in second wave feminism in the 1970s of really wanting to fight. And you could have humor while you were doing it. It didn't mean you were angry. It didn't mean you hated men. But it meant that you had some <laughs> right. fight in you. Right, because for the record, big fan of men. Yes, exactly. Men are, you know, some of our most powerful allies. Absolutely. Um, But that anger in you, were there experiences that you were having in your own life that made this personal? Because the anger, and and it's part of what I appreciated, it feels personal. Yeah. I mean, almost everything that I write about starts from a place of something personal. So a lot of my inspiration comes from things I'm experiencing in my own life and then can take a step back and, and try to understand that other people are experiencing them as well. So, yes, it certainly was my experience. And in particular, I began my career as a young writer at Newsweek magazine, a place where I would learn you know, three or four years into my job there when I was feeling very stifled that the women of Newsweek had, in the 1970s, sued the magazine for gender discrimination. And this was the first lawsuit of its kind. There had never been a gender discrimination suit in a professional field. They were represented by Eleanor Holmes Norton, whose name you now recognize. Mm -hmm. And they paved the way for female journalists. They prompted lawsuits at the New York Times, Time Magazine, Sports Illustrated. There was a sit-in at the Ladies' Home Journal. And at the time, they were told that women are just not allowed to be writers. Like, you could work at Newsweek, you could do the same jobs as a man, but at the end of the day, he would write the story and get the byline and have his name on it, and you would be a researcher. And you were just supposed to accept that that's how it was. Yes, and I think for a long time they did, but then they got angry. And for me, it was through learning about that story, which I hadn't known when I started, and it took a number of years for me to realize and sort of dig up the details of it, and many of my colleagues had never heard of it as well. But it was through learning about that story that I sort of tapped into my own anger because I felt I related to it so much. And and so much of what those women described, and we ultimately tracked them down and interviewed them and did an oral history about that case, but so much of of what they described was actually so similar to what we were still experiencing. And the idea that 40 years on we could still be having these same problems you know, it was enough to make you pissed off. Absolutely. It's it's what me got got me on the road to women at work because I started talking to women and it, it had seemed like the last 40 years hadn't happened. Mm-hmm. And with every um, asset, you know, they had premier educations. They were working in extraordinary work environments, yet they were experiencing all the things that you write about. Right. Um, one of the other things that's really important, I think, to that story is it was the group of women. Yeah. And it, and it's a theme throughout the book. It was also an important aspect of that article on sororities that I loved. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, even though I know it's part of the end notes, you list um, the rebel the rebel girl feminist fight clubs throughout history. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about what you discovered about the power of these groups of women and how that shaped the way that you wrote this book. Yeah, well, so the title of the book comes from my real-life feminist fight club. Um, this is a group of women that I've been meeting with since around that time that I discovered this Newsweek lawsuit. There were a lot of things happening in the culture at that period. Um, You know, David Letterman had just, it had been revealed that he had been sleeping with his assistant. There was a gender discrimination suit at the New York Post. Um, A big report had just come out from Maria Shriver and and her nonprofit about the state of gender equality and just how far we still had to go. So there were a lot of things kind of swirling in the culture. And then I stumbled upon this lawsuit and realized that I needed a group of women to talk about these issues with. And so kind of organically, we were all feeling frustrated in our respective fields, and we came together and we began meeting. So, yeah, sorry to interrupt, but when you came together, one of the things that I thought was interesting was that there were two forces that seemed to be bringing you together. One was a way that you could support each other just in general as friends, as colleagues, as a network of women, and then a growing recognition that you were having similar experiences. Yeah, I think that for me, the most valuable thing that that group did initially was it helped me to realize that the problem was collective, not individual. You know, a lot of what I was experiencing was very subtle. It was the idea of I wasn't being told I couldn't write. It wasn't like my foremothers. I was being told, to, to the contrary, I could write. You know, mm-hmm. I could accomplish everything that the men could. But 
I still saw my ideas be published under men's bylines. And I watched as the men I had come up with as an intern got promoted faster than I did. And, and eventually I realized that many of them were making more money than me, even though they were at the same level. But for a long time, it was very easy for me to turn inward and say, you know, I'm in a creative field. It's sort of subjective. Maybe the problem is my ideas just aren't good enough. Maybe I'm not a good enough writer. Maybe this is my issue, not a collective issue. And the power of the club in many ways was that we were all simultaneously having that feeling. But once we started talking about it, we could see that there was a thread. There was a collective thread. These things were similar. And if they were similar and we were all experiencing them, and we did not all work at the same place, many of us hadn't known each other previously, then it must be something bigger. It must have been a systemic issue. At that point, or at what point in this process, did you um, become aware of not just the um, personal reward and the cathartic qualities, the the cathartic effects that can happen from being with a group like this and the way it can open your eyes, but the power that groups of women can have when they come together to identify these kinds of problems and then start moving towards bigger solutions? I mean, I think almost immediately because it changed my mindset so drastically. Um, suddenly I felt like I wasn't alone in these issues and I had other women to back me up. And there was this sense that, oh, I'm not crazy. <laughs> this is actually a collective <laughs> problem, you know. And I think that that was really a mindset shift for me. And then over time, you know, yes, we supported each other in many ways. And it didn't even necessarily begin as a group to help further each other's careers. It was simply to just talk about some of the struggles. But that all kind of happened organically. You know, as some of us rose up, we would bring others with us. And none of us were all excelling and succeeding at the same time. There was always somebody unemployed or somebody struggling. But that kind of ebb and flow actually worked really well, because there's always somebody that you could help, but there was always somebody you could turn to for help. Now, in the book, you talk about a lot of um, important concepts where you kind of break down the sex, the experiences of sexism that happen. Um, you give them hilarious and really on point names, and then you give us kind of the power moves, the battle tactics to deal with them. At the same time, you're also acknowledging what are the ways that we as women um, are either contributing to this problem or ways that we can be more mindful about our own behavior um, mm -hmm. to not go down that road. And it sounds like early on um, you were describing a classic imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that I was. You know, that's a buzzword that's thrown around these days. But for a long time, I just knew that I felt like I didn't quite belong, and I didn't know why, but I had suddenly gone from a very confident young woman and student and always the one to raise my hand in class and in college to somebody who didn't speak up and kind of cowered in the corner. And, and was that because I didn't feel like I belonged there, or was it because I was in rooms where I was entirely outnumbered by men? I'm not really sure, but I, I felt that, and it's interesting when we talk about this idea of female self-sabotage, because the onus should not be on women to change these things. No. I, I try to be very clear about that. There's a big <laughs> debate there, and we shouldn't have to do any of this. No. But the fact of the matter is we still live in a male-dominated patriarchal society, and so a lot of these behaviors have been learned over time. And so sometimes it's a matter of unlearning them, of learning to accept your space and own that you are in this position and you did get there from skill. It wasn't luck. And that's almost having to unlearn years and years of patriarchy <laughs> telling us that we don't belong in the workplace. We're not smart enough. We're not good enough. Our voices don't warrant being heard. Right. And so, um, and I want to move into the proactive things that you've really articulated beautifully, but I think this is really important because whether it's, um, it's, I, I, appreciate that you, that you made it a point to say we shouldn't have to worry about this, but these things are real, and let's use every piece of arsenal that we possibly can. And I know that one of the uh, groups that send us fan mail that I'm really delighted listen to the show are dads, and dads mm -hmm. who care about their daughters. Mm -hmm. And embedded in this are 
um, learned behaviors, subconscious behaviors, things that girls can too easily continue to learn. And in the same way as women, we're trying to unteach ourselves. Um, there are also things that for all of you dads out there who are listening, pick up this book. It is powerful. And you're going to want to read it. And you're going to want to help your daughters understand this. And in particular, in these areas where we don't have to get into our, in our own way. We can have strong voices, we can learn to speak publicly, and we can um, hold on to our own power and not lose it in a group setting. When you were going through this process, though, Jessica, how did you learn that? Did you have to self-correct any of this behavior? I still have to self-correct this behavior. <laughs> you know, I, I now have been talking about these issues nonstop for the last couple of weeks, and I catch myself on stage saying things like, Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, (laughs) um, you know, interrupting the moderator on my own talk. Um, And so apologizing or, you know, I wrote a book. So a lot of people are congratulating me and things like saying a simple thank you. I my tendency and my instinct is to attribute it back to others. You know, I couldn't have done it without the help of X, Y and Z or it's not really that big a deal. And certainly it did require the help of so many people to whom I'm so grateful, but also just learn how to fucking say thank you. <laughs> yes, this was a major issue of my grandmother. She's like, if somebody says you did something beautifully, you look great, this was really well done, say thank you. Don't mm-hmm. negate it. Right. Um, and by the way, if you'd like to say thank you to Jessica or join in the conversation, um, you can reach us at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And you can join me with Jessica Bennett, who's the author of The Feminist Fight Club, um, this fiercely funny and empowering book. So Jessica, at, in as you're learning as you go along um, and you're giving out this advice to people, there are also these strategies. Or in other words, let me rephrase it. There's hacks and then there's real tactics and strategies. Could you talk about the difference between the two and how you address them in the book? Yeah. So, you know, I come from a place of journalism, so I hate giving advice. <laughs> and I never like to give it unless it's backed up by somebody else saying it. And that is just the way that I, I work. And so every single strategy in this book is backed up by data. And what I tried to do is look at studies, that had, some of which had been out there for some time, but required some digging into to pull out the tactics that can be used to combat some of these things, and then putting them in, you know, distilling them into colloquial language and maybe even making them fun. So some of these tactics are funny and they're meant to be snarky and make you laugh, but some of them are very serious and direct. And so for each problem, whether it's being interrupted in a meeting by the man interrupter, which is something that happens twice as commonly to women as it does to men, or having your idea attributed to somebody else, a man. Sometimes that can be malicious, somebody taking credit for your idea, but oftentimes it's not. Oftentimes we simply infer that when a good idea comes from a group, it must have come from the man. So things like this, there are ways that you can work around them, and you can try to have somebody else give credit where it's due. You Mm -hmm. can employ a wingman or a wingwoman to interrupt the interrupter so that you don't come off as the naggy or sensitive one, but you still get to say your piece. You also talk very specifically about these dynamics. And um, despite all the work that I've done here on Women at Work, and actually talked to many of the experts, and I want to also commend, you really dug into the real literature on this topic and did a really excellent job of um, uh, getting to the essence of it in a useful way. But you break down, um, you call it defining the enemy. And what are these typically male behaviors that happen specifically in the workplace that derail us or get in the way of our A, feeling power, B, being seen, and then C, being able to be effective? Um, So I think it would be useful if you dove into a few of them a little bit because um, I don't think people have really thought of them in these terms. I think your funny phrases help, Um, like the stenographer fucker. Yes. Um, Stenographer with a PH. Yes. Um, Yes. So, you know, the idea is to come up with catchy phrases that might make you laugh, but that actually describe very complex and statistically proven behaviors. So the stenographer is the man, though it could also be a woman, who asks the woman in the room to take the notes or grab the coffee or do the administrative tasks. And this is common. The vast majority of low-level administrative tasks 
or party planning or cleaning up or bringing cupcakes for somebody's birthday, things that you might call office housework. These fall to women. And if a woman says no, she's often penalized for it. You know, a man may end up doing one of these tasks, and then we think he's like such a great guy for contributing. But we expect women to do them, and so they're more commonly asked, and they have a harder time saying no. I have to tell you, this happened to me at a very senior level of my career. I was an associate provost. I'm in a room surrounded by deans. And I was asked by the most senior man in the room, would I please get the coffee? And when I stopped and I said to him, but the other deans are closer to you, he said, you work for me. Wow. And this was like as a grown-up. I was not new at the game. Fortunately, the men in the room actually joined me in complaining about this. And and they recognized it as the appalling behavior it was. But um, even at a senior level, this stuff can happen. It goes back to something you talk about, about being the only woman in the room. Right. You know, this is so common, and a lot of these behaviors are also unconscious. You know, he may not realize that he's asking the only woman in the room to do it. I have a friend who is a woman of color, and she works in, in the tech field, and she's so commonly in rooms with all white men, and she's always asked to take the notes. And she started saying just very bluntly, I think that you should look at the optics of asking the only woman and the only person of color in this room to take the notes. And, you know, you can see this horrified look come over their faces because they they realize it and they realize the problem with it. And so part of what these phrases are intended to do is give you an easy way to call out the behavior. Because some of these things, mansplaining, for example, a man explaining something to you in a condescending or pedantic manner is something you probably already know. I didn't come up with this term. (laughs) It evolved through the Internet, and then Rebecca Solnit, the writer, wrote an essay about it. And so over the past five years or so, it's really exploded, and it's become part of the common vernacular. But, you know, arguably, mansplaining has existed since the dawn of time. (laughs) But it's hard to explain what that is and when somebody is doing it and call it out in any fashion. But now we have this kind of funny word for it. And so you see people being called out left and right, you know, Cable news commentators are being called out for mansplaining, and it's happening in real life, too. And it gives you a really simple way to pinpoint the behavior. And I think once the behavior is pinpointed, then those who are engaging in the behavior can actually check themselves and perhaps catch themselves and correct. Absolutely. If you, By the way, if you have seen behavior like this and found a way to deal with this, we'd love for you to give us a call and tell us your story. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Jessica, I think that that the power of having labels to put on things um, also lies in the fact that these experiences happen to us. And when they happen, we either don't catch them in the moment or we're so aghast that they happen that we don't really know in the moment how to explain them to ourselves and then therefore how to respond. Um, I've been caught off guard with some of this appalling behavior, and I usually don't run out of words. But um, I was actually in an experience recently where somebody was, um, I collaborated on a project and they had submitted it as their own work. Mm. And the minute it happened, I was like, that's a bro appropriator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and the fact that I had a name for it also, I instantly saw um, the fight moves in the book. Mm-hmm. And I remembered that one there were three different kinds of layers of them. There was the really outrageous, screw you, this is how I want to mock you publicly option. Mm-hmm. Probably not politic, not terribly practical, sometimes often hard to pull off. Mm-hmm. But then you gave other options that weren't maybe weren't quite as emotionally cathartic, but were actually more practical. Right. Yeah. You know, it's hard to give advice for specific situations when you don't know what they are. So what I've tried to do is give exactly what you said, kind of the snarky response, the direct response, and then perhaps the nicer response. And I hope that people can try to work with what's in there, which has been proven to be effective, and, you know, personalize it for what's appropriate for them. But I know that I have been caught completely speechless in some of these scenarios. And, and even now, so I've found myself referring back to the book to be like, what am I supposed to say again in this situation? <laughs> and, you know, in things like a negotiation, I've always found that we talk so much about these issues and how women should approach mm-hmm. them, but nobody provides a script or the language. So you can know all of the facts in your head, but then it's like, what do I actually say when I get there? And so 
I had heard that feedback so many times and felt it on my own that I felt like I needed to provide the actual words to say in some of these scenarios and adjust them as you see fit, but there's something to work from. Well, it's not only useful that you gave us a script, because you're right, being able to rehearse and practice, we've all tried role-playing before we're going to go and do things like ask for a raise, Um, but you also point out that there are, there's science about the way we process word choice and the way we're heard and what we're trying to express. And if we understand the science behind that, we can use it more effectively. Mm -hmm. And like you said, some of these fall into categories of the areas where we don't want this to be true. We wish this wasn't reality. It shouldn't be. But that particularly for women, say, in negotiation, there's a lot of research on this, that when we advocate for ourselves, we're seen as greedy and demanding. Right. Exactly. And and that's a lot of the tension that you may notice throughout the course of the book is that I'm telling you the advice that has been proven to work, but sometimes I don't agree with it. Say women are told that if they smile when they go in to negotiate a raise, they're actually more likely to be viewed as friendly and more likely to get it. Well, anyone who has been told by anyone before to smile, um, you know, the the resting bitch face, um, this term has evolved out of women being constantly told they need to smile. That we have to be happy and pretty. Right. We need to be happy all the time. Um, We never have any problems. And if we are not smiling, we must be upset. Whereas if a man is unsmiling, he's just simply being normal. Or Um, dare I say powerful. Right. Exactly. Serious. Um, So... I don't want to smile. <laughs> you know, I shouldn't have to smile. That, that's absurd. But I want the money. I want to get in power. And I want to get there so that I can lift other women up. And hopefully there is a domino effect and we can work to change these issues. So in some cases, you'll note I'm saying this advice is actually really screwed up. I recognize that. Um, but I want you to have the knowledge and you decide what to do with it. And at the end of the day, if grinning, literally grinning and bearing it is going to get you the money, then, you know, do it. <laughs> um, I'm talking with Jessica Bennett, the author of Feminist Fight Club. I'm Laura Zarrow here on Women at Work. We're going to take a short break. When we get back, we're going to talk more about the hacks, tips, and principles behind Jessica's amazing book. And in the meantime, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and uh, this is the second half of our show with the fantastic Jessica Bennett. She's an award-winning journalist and author of Feminist Fight Club, an office survival manual for a sexist workplace. If you'd like to join in the conversation and tell us, how do you feel about the word feminism? Are you using it? Are you afraid of it? Give us a call. We can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And while you contemplate, you know, the landmine that feminism can be as a word, um, I'm going to get back to things with Jessica. So, Jessica, thanks so much for joining us here. Thanks for having me. So one of the other big kind of, I think, sub-themes in the book that really touched me and I think was important was the idea of the role of advancing women and female, both what you call vagformation or vagformative action mm-hmm. and um, female self-sabotage and our relationships with each other. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about um, vagformative action and why it's so important? <laughs> yes. So- <laughs> and did I say it right? Yes, you did. Okay. Um, Badge affirmative action was one of the original rules of my real life fight club, which was essentially you must support other women. You know, bottom line, like there are no ifs, ands, or buts. And we really felt that and we really employed that. And we had a no mean girls policy and we had a strict constant support that even if you didn't agree, you didn't have to agree. Clearly, we all have different opinions, but you had to support each other. And, you know, this is an interesting topic, I think, because we hear so much about females competing with one another. Mm -hmm. And there is some real research to show that that does exist. But my feeling is that the reason why women compete is because for so long, we've been taught that there are only a few slots for women. 
So if you look at the large pie and there's just this tiny sliver for women, then of course you're going to be competitive with the woman next to you and elbow her out of the way because you want that piece of the pie. But if we could actually equalize things, if things were equal across the board, then competition would still exist. That, of course, is a natural part of the modern workplace. And not necessarily unproductive if it's done for the right reasons. Exactly. But it would be equal competition among humans, not simply women competing with one another. Right. And, you know, I think that for me, it has so often been my instinct to revert to that competitive place. You know, somebody else is writing about gender issues. Well, I should be competitive with them. Like this is (laughs) there's a lot of places to write and a lot of topics to cover. That's a ridiculous feeling for me to have. And so I've often really just had to check myself and remember that kind of silly but also serious rule of the feminist fight club employ badge affirmative action you know support other women even if you don't necessarily feel supported by them like go out of your way to make relationships and to become allies not enemies there were two um there was one really funny phrase that you kind of include in your discussion of these things and an important statistic one is that we stand on the shoulder pads of the women who came before us mm-hmm. <laughs> i really just loved it but it's true and it came up in the context of um that women often complain about how terrible female bosses are right. and um you note both about that and also about the way that we can look at mean girls that of women experience this, which suggests that all of us at some point behave that way. Right, exactly. So, you know, I think that we've all probably been that mean girl at one point or another, but there's also an interesting statistic about how conflict between women is more frequently viewed as a catfight or, you know, conflict between mean girls, whereas you know, conflict is sometimes a part of business. And mm-hmm. when two men are having a conflict, a conflict is simply viewed as business. Yes. So why are we assuming that two women are taking each other down or tearing each other down when they're having a conflict at work? So I think that there's a lot of layers to this, but one of them is that we see female competitiveness in a different light. But at the same time, I think that we really can help each other, and there's so much power in doing that. And You know, even when we talk about female bosses, yes, the headlines for so long have been, why do we hate female bosses? That's always a headline I read. Well, okay, a lot of Americans say that they dislike female bosses. However, if you dig into that data, what you actually will find is that those who have had a female boss really do like them. So it's people speaking on behalf of stereotypes, not on real life. Um, On this point, we actually have a question coming in. Caroline's calling from Washington, D.C. Caroline, welcome to Women at Work. Thanks so much for calling in. What's on your mind? Thank you for taking my call. I I was just about to ask about that article that seems to me you're starting to address about the Queen Bee Syndrome at work. And the Wall Street Journal um, ran a really interesting article about how we're biologically wired um, to crush the people coming behind us. And um, I don't know how much truth there is in that. you're starting to address it, but I, if, if I could add on one question, if you don't mind, about all of these new statistics coming from the Centers for Disease Control in the last year about how middle-aged women are dying earlier than any other cohort, and in history, this is unprecedented. So it's almost like we have a new problem that has no name, um, 2.0, and um, I do think that the female bonding and the group dynamics can really help women, but are you seeing that as well? Um, in terms of, you know, women feeling purposeless and and sad and depressed and, and kind of going into alcoholism and alcohol abuse at younger and younger ages. If you could address both of those topics, I'd really appreciate it. Yeah, you know, I think it's tricky. I hadn't read that piece, but I do think that there is a tendency to have this generational conflict as well. Um, you know, the sense that If you are a woman worker over the age of 50, you know that you are going to struggle to get back into the workforce if you're out of it. That is the cohort that has the hardest time getting back in. You know that there are younger people coming in who are probably more technologically savvy, and this is across genders, I think. And so there's this natural tendency to be competitive. And then I think at the same time, you know, younger generations are always accused of not respecting their elders. Like, that has existed forever. And I just know that for me, 
I have had some of the largest revelations in my life through talking with women of different generations. And from the Newsweek women of that original lawsuit in the 1970s to mentors that I've found and developed over the years who came from eras earlier. And and I just know that I have respected so much of what they've said and learned so much from it. So I guess what I can say is trying to learn from people younger than you and older than you. I'm not sure how that affects alcoholism, but but I certainly think that we can address the female competitiveness. And also, while I've read about this rise in middle-age alcoholism and the health impact of it, um, I don't know if we should necessarily connect it to some of these issues in the workplace, because that's making a kind of secondary correlation. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would say in a positive way, something we've heard a lot about here on Women at Work, whether it's through our guests or the research that's being done, is the proliferation of women's networks. Mm -hmm. Um, And quite interestingly, um, ones from mature women, even women who are transitioning in the later stages of their career and into retirement. So that at least what we see demonstrated, while I can't give you the statistics, is evidence that women, especially with the advent of social media, are finding more and more ways to find one another. And that at the um, younger stages, that social media is playing a profound role in emotional well-being for teens because it's letting people connect. Mm. So I don't think we can underestimate the value of bonding, although I think it would be interesting to learn more about whether the struggles that women are facing, how it's correlating with substance abuse and health along the way. So, Caroline, thank you for calling in on those two provocative questions. I really buying your book for my 24 year old daughter who's at Harvard Law School. She really needs this book because I'm in two <laughs> female mastermind groups, and I don't know how people live without them. So okay, yeah. thank you. You know, the next generation needs to to do what we're talking about. So thank you so much for the thank discussion. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Caroline. If you'd like to join in the conversation, you can reach us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one. 1- 844-942-7866. So, okay, so staying on this theme of the power of groups of women, Jessica, you also talk about, um, you know, it's the companion to veg affirmative action is clit- clitoral mass. <laughs> so yeah. talk to us about why that's important and particularly how women should think about it and where can men be effective in this regard? Right. So what the research shows is that In group settings, women are more likely to speak up if there are more than a third of them in a room. So we talked earlier about how I, early in my career, felt a lot of this imposter syndrome and felt this hesitation about speaking up. And the one thing that I very clearly remember is these were big rooms full of a lot of white men. And I was completely outnumbered, both by age but also by gender. And so knowing the research and knowing that women are actually less likely to speak up when there are less women in the room sort of validated that for me in a way. And so when I talk about clitoral mass, which is essentially the feminist term for critical mass, of course, the feminist <laughs> term that I made up um, for critical mass, the idea is just getting more women in the room. So women feel comfortable speaking up and they can support each other. You know, there was an amazing piece in the Washington Post last week about the women of the White House. And it talked about how these women, the most powerful women in the most powerful office in the country, employed this tactic called amplification. And they had given it a name, and what it was was they invited each other to meetings so there would be more women in the room. They would validate each other's ideas in those meetings, whether it was a nod or chiming in to say they agreed. And they would essentially act as each other's wing women. A lot of what we discussed all throughout the book. And so the idea that even these women in the highest office in the land had to employ some of these tactics in a very progressive White House with a man who calls himself a feminist, I think goes to show that all of us can employ some of these things. And it's unfortunate that we have to do it, but it can be effective. And it's particularly effective at these levels because they reflect a leaky pipeline. Mm-hmm. And that no matter how progressive the office is, the president, um, the senior staff there, um, we we know that there is a leaky pipeline. Women are dropping out along the way. And that's part of why there are too few men, too few women in the room. And so right. by augmenting it through this kind of amplification, you can really change the game um, within that group experience. Yeah. But, well, I was just going to say, I think that you know, this change has to come from top down and bottom up. 
you know, it can't be approached from just one way or another. And what a lot of the research shows and some of the new research I was just working on helping lean in Cheryl Sandberg's nonprofit is getting ready to release a big report with McKinsey that looks at a lot of these issues. And it comes out at the end of the month. And some of their data found that while so many of the heads of companies and the upper echelons of power are very committed to changing these issues and are employing know, large diversity initiatives and all of these tools, it's not necessarily trickling down. Employees aren't feeling it. Mm -hmm. So I think that we have to attack this from both avenues and try to come up with a solution. And, you know, that White House example is the perfect one because they're doing it from the ground up as well as top down. Absolutely, because we've got to get more people into the pipeline and we've got to plug the holes. What about the people who say, because of the leaky pipeline, there just aren't enough talented women out there or there aren't enough talented African-Americans out there. Look harder. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I just have no <laughs> I have no patience for that excuse. Like if if other people can do it, you can do it. And, you know, make a binder, make a binder of women if you have to. <laughs> um, but my feeling is from reviewing resumes to interviewing people like you do not move forward on a hire unless you have also interviewed a woman and you have also interviewed a person of color like I thought it's that not was acceptable anymore it, it it is truly unacceptable yet it's also not common practice right people wind up looking like you said are we looking back at the problem or are we looking ahead to solve it and that you shouldn't look after you've gone through the hiring process at a slate that's that's all one color or all one gender you've got to start beforehand and not even proceed with the interview process unless it's diverse um right by the way we have a call in from julia from illinois julia thank you so much for calling in at women at work what's on your mind taking my call and I already just bought the book before I called in um, sounds like a wonderful book anyway my call is about how do you address the situations where it's, it's definitely a more subtle layer so I, I work at a in theory what's a really great company um, overall fairly general gender equal but then there are subtleties that you see just in little places all around so you'll see the manager asks the guys to go play ping pong with him, or you'll find areas where a manager may use the word abrasive on a job review to specifically deal with a woman who's empowered and who's trying to get her job done. Right. Um, and then when you address it, blows it off and says, oh, well, it was another woman who said that, as if that is reason enough to be able to use it. Mm -hmm. I think that... We are talking about these issues, but we need to talk about them more. You know, the the mention of another woman using it, that's 100% true. Women exhibit these biases as well. And the fact is, likely we would never call a man abrasive. So I think that we can talk about the issues. We can talk about the fact that I have a character in the book called the frat social chair, and this <laughs> is essentially the person that's in charge of the company calendar and deciding what events will happen. And so like the ping pong example, you know, Events can be exclusionary. If the only type of event that's happening is fantasy football and the women don't want to take part, which isn't to say that women don't like football and there are all sorts of statistics to show that playing sports actually helps to breed female leaders, but there is something you can find in the middle there yes. <laughs> that is a little bit more inclusive. And, you know, outside of office, FaceTime is still FaceTime and it's still important. So making sure that managers are not giving special treatment and inviting only the bros to go play ping pong with them. But how do you address it? I think that some of these things are simply talking about them, talking about the gender bias that exists. And I, what I found to be really effective is just using studies as my weaponry, because then it's not you. You're not, it's not you that's having a problem with it. It's that actually we're reading this really interesting study that found that in workplaces where there are these segregated company events, it actually tends to exclude women. And, oh, did you know the word abrasive is used three times as commonly to refer to women as to men? Would you ever call a man abrasive? So I have found myself using the data as a defense mechanism. And so in cases where I don't know what else to do, I've recommended using that. There's also something else, um, Jessica, that you mentioned in the book that I thought was great, that there are going to be um, those kinds of gatherings that you may be invited to and you don't want to go to, but they're important to attend and to find a way to navigate them, to when you can put yourself in the room. 
Right. So that when you can't make change the culture, when you can't get them to reconceive the cigar bar and whiskey tasting event um, with, you know, the half-dressed waitresses at the cigar bar as the office outing, mm-hmm. um, that where are there places that you can go without really feeling totally outcast so you're relaxed enough to engage and perhaps have a seltzer? have something to drink, be in the room, be at the table. Could you talk a little bit about the importance of that? Yeah, you know, again, it's this tricky thing of you shouldn't have to force yourself to attend some bro event you don't want to attend. <laughs> but the reality is that the people who are there are probably getting FaceTime. And so sometimes inserting yourself into that can be beneficial. And oftentimes maybe the person just doesn't even realize they're not asking you or they assume that the women at the company wouldn't be interested. So inserting yourself in and and saying, hey, can I come along? Or, it, you know, figuring out some way to bring along a, a group of women, I think can be pretty effective if, if it's not, you know, completely undermining your morals to go to whatever that place may be. <laughs> right. And as you put it in the book, attendance can be womanatory. Yes, mandatory. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and once again, you know, you want to get a clitoral mass there right. because um, make it so that the women go, bring one another, bring your w- wing woman so you're not alone, right. um, but be present and get the FaceTime so that you're in the game. Julia, thank you so much. It's a really great question. And thank you for calling Women at Work. You can reach us if you'd like to join in the conversation at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And I'm talking with the extraordinary Jessica Bennett, award-winning journalist and author of Feminist Fight Club, an office survival manual for a sexist workplace. So Jessica, I want to ask you about something that I've often struggled with, both um, for myself and as I look at women around me. And it's um, the issue of getting dressed in the workplace. Mm. You talked about the hoverer as one of those, um, you know, (laughs) the bad moves. Mm -hmm. The man who just comes and like hovers around your desk and Mm -hmm. tries to look down your shirt. And you know that's what he's doing, but you can't really call him on it. And it's really uncomfortable. Um, What advice do you have to give or perspective do you have on the way women dress at work? Yeah, I mean... I sort of punted on this in the book with a section that was a history of female dress with a lot of interesting factoids about high heels and actually how it was men who originally wore high heels and the origins of the power suit and how it was meant to be a really easy thing that that women could put on and wear from day to night. But this is a very real issue that many people think of, even if we think of it as frivolous. You know, women are judged more harshly on their looks. And looksism is a very real thing, and it affects women more. And a man can be frumpy as all hell, and it's considered (laughs) just fine. But as a woman, you know, we have to be polished. I mean, literally, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, like, there would never be a sweaty, unmakeup, hair-disheveled female (laughs) up there who would get such adoration from people like that is just the reality so while it is a double standard these things often do matter and there are unfortunate hoverers who will stand over your desk talking to you i don't know that clothes one way or another solves this problem i think that this is a problem of being in a workplace where there are where you can't just simply remove sexuality from the equation. Like well, humans are sexual beings. Right. So speaking of that, one of the things I loved in your um, kind of the history of getting dressed and the booby traps mm-hmm. is you talked about when women started wearing maxi skirts after have, mini skirts having been the style at work. Mm-hmm. And that there were actually some women who were punished by their bosses for hiding the goodies. Right. <laughs> and right. that women called, were... I, I, There was some CEO executive somewhere in the 1960s who said he would fire any woman who showed up in a maxi skirt. Right. Like part of our job was to bring our calves to work. Right. Exactly. Um, And it raises this very complicated question of where power comes from Mm -hmm. and what kind of power we're exhibiting. Like I was shocked when I was going to visit Goldman Sachs and somebody said to me, oh, no, you have to make sure you have closed-toed shoes. I was like, no, little peekaboo toe pumps. No, 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 closed-toed shoes. But the closed-toed shoes that were being worn there were five-inch FMPs. They were the most sexualized shoes I had ever seen in the business world. So strange. Um, I guess 
what I've noticed on my book tour <laughs> so far, because I've had to think a lot about clothes because I'm doing public appearances and I typically work from home and hardly put on clothes at all. So I have a uniform. I have figured out what my uniform is and I wear it every day. And I have just ordered duplicates and triple copies of that uniform online that are being shipped to me because it is what I consider to be a professional outfit that doesn't cause or call too much attention to myself and it is easy and it doesn't require me to think about. Then do you feel great in it? Yeah. And I feel good in it. It feels, I mean, it feels like me and it feels comfortable. Um, so I've had friends who, who talk about this, you know, they will wear all black, black jeans and a black button up and that's their uniform. Just like Mark Zuckerberg wears, you know, a hoodie and jeans every day because they don't want to have to answer questions about their attire and they don't want to call attention to it and they feel comfortable in this look and they're just going to go with it. So I think there's so many different ways you can think about this. And there's still a lot of places where, you know, flight attendants typically are required to wear skirts still. Like that is a completely antiquated thing. That is crazy. But it still exists and we almost don't even notice it. And so even because the, the, it's so loaded, there are so many landmines, um, aside from the fact that it's practical, like have a few things that you're comfortable with, know that they're clean, know that they fit you, know that they're attractive. It's also a way of figuring out how can you d- be dressed appropriately for the context you're in so that attention is going to the right things. Right. You know, at the end of the day, you want people to be listening to what you're saying, not focused on what you're wearing. Um, but you want to look professional for the job. Um, speaking of being professional for the job, I owe a duty to one of our callers. Um, we're running out of time on the hour, but I did want to acknowledge him. Um, Carl uh, has called from Atlanta. And Carl, we only have about a minute. Can you share your question with us really quickly? Sure, sure. I'll try to keep it keep it brief. But um, I was on the way to uh, to meet up with the client, and I was just listening to you all talk. I was curious whether it's ever possible in your estimation that um, on a performance review, a woman could actually have been abrasive, as, as I heard you all talking and seemed to be perhaps offering up explanations that in a way could ever could explain away, even if another woman had used such such a right. descriptor for for them. So is that is it ever in your mind actually possible to be valid or is your problem with the fact that men are more likely to be characterized as jerks versus women and you don't like that women get more likely characterized as abrasive or right i mean that's what i'm trying to understand yeah yeah no that's a very good question i think that it's possible for anybody to be abrasive certainly my problem is that there's a double standard in the language when a man and a woman behave in the same exact way a woman is called abrasive or bossy and a man will often just be called a leader or, you know, doing what it takes to get the job done. And in a business context especially, you know, being abrasive, being direct, a lot of these terms we use, these are necessary to get things done. And what you see is that frequently when people will ask themselves, well, if the same exact behavior was enacted by a man, would I still call that person abrasive? So that's sort of my test for this, my like gender flip test. If the behavior would have been described as abrasive in a man, then fine. Like, I think you're in the clear. But we don't want to be applying the double standard where a woman who is being direct is abrasive, but a man is being direct who's being direct is simply just direct. So I hate to have to cut this off. So, Carl, thank you so much for listening, for calling. I really appreciate the question. And, Jessica, I can't thank you enough for joining us on Women at Work and this extraordinary book. Thank you. And I'd also like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Dan Baker, and, of course, Allie Freed for her awesome prep work for the show. Our schedule of replays can be found on the SiriusXM website. That's www.siriusxm.com backslash business radio. Tune in next week when we'll be talking with two Wharton alumnae, Leslie Kilgore of Netflix and LinkedIn and Victoria Mars about how to lead from the boardroom and some of the key factors that got them there. Thanks so much for listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. I'm Laura Zarrow and have a great week. Thanks so much, everyone.